Today from the global lane, population crisis. Entire nations may disappear. Japan, France, Britain, most of Western Europe, Central Europe, all of us have uh, population growth rates below replacement level. Abortion on the ballot in Michigan, promoted as common sense health care. It's very extreme. You know, transgender surgeries, that's a sterilization process. It puts us on a par with China and North Korea. Religious beliefs on trial in New York. Should an LGBTQ club be allowed at an Orthodox Jewish university? Who is going to be the one to interpret the Torah for this school? The leaders at the school or the Supreme Court? And an urgent warning from Iranian Christians. A final period of testing is coming quickly to America. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Population bomb or bust? While climate change activists tell us the world is heading for extinction if we fail to act now, in reality, humans may face extinction in a number of countries because their populations are having fewer babies. Marion Tupi, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, joins us to provide more insights. He's author of the book Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Marion, in the late 1960s, Paul Ehrlich, in his book, The Population Bomb, predicted global famine, other societal turmoil due to overpopulation. Now it looks like underpopulation is a growing problem. Tell us what is happening and why we need to be concerned. Paul Ehrlich, who is still alive, he is a biologist at uh, Stanford University, uh, was looking at the huge explosion of population around the world uh, in the 1960s after the end of the Second World War. And that was indeed happening. And in 1968, he wrote a book, The Population Bomb, which predicted that hundreds of millions of people would die in the 1970s and the 1980s, regardless of what humanity did in order to come up with solution to this massive increase in population. But in fact, um, whilst the population of the world has indeed risen, uh, we did not see that happening. In fact, since 1960s, commodities have been becoming uh, less expensive. They've been becoming more affordable. Uh, I can just tell you that uh, uh, the price of uh, coffee, for example, dropped by 96%, the price of wheat by 88%, uh, the price of corn by 87%. So over a span of 70 years, while the population of the world was exploding, everything has become cheaper, with partial exception on some years of gold and oil. And we've seen one-way flights recently full of people departing Russia uh, after President Putin issued his military draft order to mobilize people to fight in Ukraine. But Russia was already losing population. The country may likely see a decline of nearly one million people just this year. So tell us what's happening in Russia and why. Well, Russian population has been declining with a few exceptions since the since really the 1980s. Uh, part of it had to do with difficult living conditions and alcoholism, which has, re, uh, which has uh, resulted in uh, shorter lifespans. Uh, the healthcare isn't very good either, so a lot of people die unnecessarily. But since the invasion of Ukraine and since the mobilization call, uh, a lot of people have decided to leave Russia for Georgia and the Baltics and other places because they don't want to die in a war. But you know, that is sort of just a Russia-centered view. Um, 
you know, uh, fertility rates have been declining throughout uh, most of the world. Um, in order to maintain population stable, you need 2.1 babies per woman per lifetime. Uh, but in most of the developed West, including the United States, uh, population, uh, sorry, uh, fertility rates are much lower. In our own country, it's only 1.7 per native-born woman. Of course, our population is still growing because of immigration. But in other countries, which do not have huge immigration inflows, the situation is even more dire. In South Korea, for example, it's only 0.9 babies per woman per lifetime instead of 2.1. Japan, France, Britain, most of Western Europe, Central Europe, all of us have uh, population growth rates below replacement level. So, so what's the consequence of that? What's the result? Are we going to see nations well, the disappear? Well, um, if the trends continue, now the trends may continue for a variety of reasons. Uh, there are good reasons and there are bad reasons. Uh, the good reason is that a lot more women decide for themselves how many babies they want to go, they want to have, maybe they want to get a job, uh, make a lot of money. Uh, those are the sorts of reasons that we have to accept by living as living in a free society. But then there are negative reasons for falling fecundity. And uh, one of them is, of course, uh, extreme environmentalism, which is something that we have decided to tackle in this book that we wrote called Superabundance. Basically, you know, parental choices don't happen in a vacuum. Parental choices happen as a result also in part of the sort of uh, philosophical zeitgeist, uh, the, the ideas in the air. And uh, a, lot, a lot of people, men and women who want to have children, are telling pollsters that they are refusing to have children because they believe that the world is going to end in a few years, because they believe that bringing a child into the world is a crime or an act of selfishness, because they believe that population of the world, humanity, is a cancer on the planet. So what we are trying to say in this book is that the planet is actually in a very good shape. And uh, if past is uh, any, any uh, you know, if past is to teach us anything, it's very likely that children in the future are going to have an even better future than we, than we have the current present. Okay, Marion Tupi, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. Thank you, Marion, for providing those insights. We appreciate it. Here on the home front, voters next month will decide the future of abortion in five U.S. states, in Montana and Kentucky. Voters face ballot questions asking if they want to further restrict abortion access. And in California, Vermont and Michigan, they'll be asked to codify a right to abortion in their state's constitution. Our next guest believes if Michigan voters approve amending their constitution, the Great Lakes state would become the most extreme abortion state in the nation. Well, here with more on that is David Coleman. He's senior counsel at the Great Lakes Justice Center. David, it's good to talk with you again. So please explain for our viewers in your opinion, why would approval of the proposed constitutional amendment on abortion taint pure Michigan? Well, it's very simple. The, the left is arguing that all we're doing is codifying Roe v. Wade and putting back in abortion in the first trimester. And that's all this is doing. Nothing could be further from the truth. This constitutional amendment, if it's passed, will allow abortion up to the moment of birth. It will allow partial birth abortion. It will allow uh, children to get abortions without parental consent or parental knowledge or notice. It'll allow school clinics to give contraceptives to kids. It's just on and on. This goes way beyond in Michigan, just the issue of abortion. It gives now, it would create a new right to reproductive freedom, whatever that means. 
and they have a laundry list of different things, including things like sterilization and infertility. So you can get into all sorts of other issues there. You know, transgender surgeries, because that's a sterilization process. There's so many other things here that, that the people of Michigan need to know and understand how far and wide this new law would go if it's passed. It's very extreme. Gary, it puts us on a par with China and North Korea if it passes. That's how bad it is. Well, why would that be considered unconstitutional if the people decide to change the Constitution to amend it? Well, it's not unconstitutional for them to change it uh, and to put it on the ballot. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that if it's done, people need to understand what it will do. And it goes way beyond just the issue of abortion. And it's going to make uh, Michigan, they will allow no regulation of abortion in Michigan at all. And despite the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision allowing abortion nationwide, Michigan had a 90-year-old law in the books banning abortion. The 1931 law was not enforced, I guess, after Roe, but only recently was that law struck down by a judge. So on what basis did she strike down that law? And is, is her decision being challenged under appeal at all? Planned Parenthood has one case going where a judge issued an injunction in our court of claims. Then there's a second case that Governor Whitmer brought against various prosecutors around the state to try to stop them from enforcing our abortion statute. We represent two of the prosecutors who are fighting in that case. And the, the circuit judge in that case issued an injunction about a month ago, and that's on appeal right now also. So it's really a sad state of affairs in Michigan. We have a valid law that's been on the books really since we've been a state. It's had various you know, incarnations through the years, but the last time it was amended was 90 years ago. We were in the oral argument, Gary, for, for that case about a month ago, and the attorney general stood up and pleaded with the judge to hear the voices of women you know, all throughout Michigan and to grant this injunction and don't let back valley abortions be brought back. So I stood up and said, well, you know what? You're not hearing the voices from the 30,000 babies who are going to be killed if this order is signed. You're not hearing the voices of all the pro-life women in this state that oppose what's being done here. It should be something that's handled at the ballot box. And that's what's happening with our constitutional amendment. I'm not attacking the process. The process is correct. It should be to a vote of the people. That's what the U.S. Supreme Court said in Dobbs. But what I'm attacking is this extreme, far, far beyond the bounds of just common decency proposal. And that's the word that has to get out in Michigan. And, and David, finally, polls show a majority of Michigan voters support that constitutional amendment on abortion. So how might state lawmakers respond if voters do approve the measure? Could the legislature block the change? Would it be challenged in court or what? Well, it has to be challenged in court. But honestly, given the makeup of our Supreme Court at this point, I highly doubt such a challenge would be fruitful. And I don't think the legislature could do anything because it's a constitutional amendment. And it would not allow any regulation of abortion in the state of Michigan because it permits abortion if the mental or physical health of a mother is at risk. Well, I don't think there's an abortion that occurs where you could not argue that. And that's why it allows abortion at any point in time through the process. So it's a very dangerous, uh, very evil proposal. And we have to get the word out. Right to Life of Michigan, the Michigan Catholic Conference, uh, CTV, other groups in Michigan are all joining together, and we're going to be fighting this over the next six weeks. Okay, David Coleman of the Great Lakes Justice Center. Thank you, David, for being with us. We appreciate it. Anytime, Gary. Thanks.
Students at the University of Southern California are getting some financial help for producing pro-abortion films. USC's Annenberg School of Communications has announced its Inclusion Initiative program will provide a minimum of three students with $25,000 each to help fund script development and production. Well, here to explain is Emily Fowler. She's campus reform correspondent and student at the Masters University in Santa Clarita, California. So, Emily, I, I'm sure those behind this Annenberg program would say, well, we're a private university, so what's wrong with USC funding short documentaries about reproductive health, which, by the way, is an educational program advocating abortion? Uh, what do you think? So yeah, um, the University of Southern California's Journalism School is giving $100,000 worth of grants to help rising seniors produce films about reproductive rights. And like you said, when we say reproductive rights, this university means um, pro-abortion ideology. And this is a private university, but even at private universities, you have a diverse group of people with different ideas, right? So what this university is doing is a very clear bias in higher education because they are encouraging and promoting only one point of view, and that is the pro-abortion point of view. So then the pro-life students are being denied an opportunity that they could have to showcase their point of view on this particular issue. It seems that they're now teaching students to be advocates for a particular position. So what happens to those journalism and communication students who favor a more balanced approach, like you mentioned, those who may want to, say, report about adoption or about uh, women who have regretted their decision to have an abortion? What happens to them? So at this university in particular, these students are going to be probably looked down upon for their views. Um, at the University of Southern California, the dean came out in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade and said blatantly that she thought it was healthier for a woman to have an abortion than to actually give birth. And when you have leaders at these universities coming out and publicly making statements like that, it's very discouraging to pro-life students, and they're going to feel um, completely unable to showcase their views on campus. Because why would you think if the the dean of the university is coming out and saying things like that, then if I was a student there, I would think, why would I ever make a pro-life film? I would get a horrible grade. Um, and so they're making decisions based off how they think their message is going to be received. Are there similar pro-abortion programs at other colleges and universities? If so, where? Universities have become much more vocal on this issue after Roe v. Wade, um, and we have seen multiple stories about pro-life students, not just in journalism schools, but in all different fields, um, getting lashed back for their beliefs. So at the University of Iowa, there was a student who was tabling, and someone actually came up and tried to flip over the table. Um, same thing at George Mason University in Virginia. Another student also was tabling, and they had their pro-life resources scattered all over by other students. On another topic, okay, this one involves religious freedom on campus. Uh, the Supreme Court recently refused an emergency request by Yeshiva University uh, to block a new state uh, court decision, New York state court decision, requiring the Orthodox uh, Jewish school to recognize an LGBTQ club on campus. Tell us about that. What, what happened and what may happen next? So Yeshiva is a Jewish school in New York, and they denied an LGBTQ club recognition on campus because it was in contrast with their view of the Torah. Um, and when the LGBTQ club sued them, they took the case to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court currently, as of the, a recent decision, has 
taken that decision back to the state. But the real question here is who is going to be the one to interpret the Torah for the school? The leaders at the school or the Supreme Court? During the last term, the U.S. Supreme Court made various decisions uh, reaffirming religious freedom. It seems that they've sent this case, as you said, back to New York's courts to decide. So I'm assuming, Emily, you believe they should have intervened to uphold Yeshiva University's right to decide which clubs to allow uh, based on their religious and moral beliefs. Tell us more. Yes, yeah, so I'm actually a student at a Christian school. The Master's University is a Christian, conservative, private school. And I chose that university because I wanted to be around people who had the same beliefs as me. So I chose it based off my belief system. And I know that there are many Jewish students who went to yeshiva because they're Jewish and they wanted to be around people who held their beliefs. So I think it's very unfair to them that now the school is being forced to conform to another belief system, even though they're a private school who should get to decide um, how, to re how to uphold their religious values, just because they have to be inclusive to this one group. And if, if it happened to Yeshiva University, it could happen to my school. And I know it would be detrimental to our student body if we had someone who decided to come in and decide that they didn't agree with us, so they were just going to try to <clears throat> change our entire um, way of life here at Masters. Emily Fowler, thank you so much for setting us straight today. Thank you for having me. Is America descending into a dark period of political oppression? Two Iranian underground church leaders are issuing an urgent warning over a parallel they see between what has happened in their country and what is occurring right now in the United States and the West. Here's a portion of their message produced by Global Catalytic Ministries after President Biden's anti-MAGA Republican speech. They say, quote, dear friends, please hear us. The words spoken by President Biden are almost identical to the things said by the Iranian government. They warn that we underground Christians are a great threat to Iran. They say we are a threat to the rule of law, even though we are ordinary people and families and law-abiding citizens. This same evil spirit is growing presently in your own nations. The day when your own government treats ordinary citizens like a threat has arrived. Dear friends, please hear us. The final period of testing is coming quickly. Like the Ayatollah in Iran, the Biden administration has weaponized the federal police for partisan gain. Our president is using the Department of Justice and the FBI to arrest and harass his political opponents. He's co-opted them to raid the home of a former president, a potential opposition candidate in the 2024 presidential election. Let that one sink in, folks. Whether you like or dislike Donald Trump, was that raid against a former president of the United States necessary for political theater? It's really third world or a Gestapo-like thuggery. Now, the ruling party is targeting pro-life Christians. The most recent incident occurred in Pennsylvania, where the FBI arrested pro-life activist Mark Houck. He's co-founder of a conservative Catholic group called The King's Men. At least 20 FBI agents stormed his home at dawn on September 23rd in SWAT team-like fashion. Several of the heavily armed agents reportedly pointed their guns at Houck's head as his traumatized wife and seven children looked on. His crime? He allegedly pushed a 72-year-old man outside a Philadelphia abortion clinic in September 2021. Not last week, but one year ago.
Charges against Hauk were dismissed back then, so why now? Hmm. Could it be that we have a midterm election coming up in less than six weeks, and the party in power needs to create an imaginary security crisis at abortion clinics in order to increase pro-abortionist voter participation at the polls? Well, the DOJ has charged Hauk with violating the federal Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. But Hauk's attorneys from the Thomas More Society argue the law does not cover one-on-one -on -one altercations like the one involving Hauk. They contend the abortion proponent initiated the incident by harassing Hauk's son. They also say Hauk received no response three months ago when he offered to turn himself in to authorities. Well, Thomas More Society Vice President Peter Breen believes the case is, quote, being brought solely to intimidate people of faith and pro-life Americans. Folks, this is a travesty, as is the DOJ's failure to bring to justice those responsible for scores of attacks on pro-life crisis pregnancy centers. That's the greater threat to innocent Americans. Compass Care Services CEO Pastor Joe Harden says he's still waiting for someone to be arrested more than 100 days after he provided police with surveillance video of the attack against his company's Amherst Center. Pro-abortion radicals have attacked nearly 100 pro-life centers and churches since early last summer. Still, there's been no arrests, no words of condemnation from the Biden administration. If pro-life militants had firebombed or vandalized abortion clinics, media coverage would have been nonstop, and those responsible would be sitting behind bars. Folks, this is a double standard of justice and an affront against pro-life Christians. It's time for the silent majority to speak up and stand up. The course can be reversed, but we must participate in this fall's election and get on our knees and pray that God will deliver us from the evil one who's seeking to destroy us and our nation. So let's not forget that warning of those Iranian underground church leaders. And let's remember the words of a popular adage from more than 150 years ago. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.